1: absolutely phenomenal. Uh so I mean this is the kind of thing that you want to turn
0: to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music
2: and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear.
0: Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry-mango-coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. impressive overclocking potential your dream setup amazing prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at alienware.com slash deals that's alienware.com slash deals welcome to
2: stuff to blow your mind from howstuffworks.com
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb,
2: and I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, take us back to 1964. We're uh, we're picking up a newspaper. Mm-hmm. What's going to be the big, big news? Like, what's captivate? What's what's the the juicy story that everyone's outraged about?
2: Well, there is a woman named Kitty Genovese, and okay. this, this is New York City. This right? is in New- It's actually in Queens. Queens, okay. And she is a 28 year old bar manager, and she's coming back from her job, something like three o'clock in the morning, and she gets out of her car. And she's walking and she is – all of a sudden she's in hot pursuit by this guy wielding a knife. And she happens to be in in a neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. Um. And she calls out for help. He begins to stab her. And the story goes like this, that for 35 minutes during three different attacks – because this guy, like, attacks her and then he – Realizes that his car is in the open and people will ID his car. So he goes and he moves his car and he comes back mm-hmm. and he starts attacking her and then so on and so forth. Three different attacks. Uh, her cries were heard by an estimated 38 people.
1: And all of this unprovoked, just out of the blue, random attack. Yeah. And, uh, and she dies.
2: She dies. Yeah. Um, finally though, one person telephones the police. One person out of the, the 38. This is the story.
1: Right.
2: And it absolutely shocks. Uh, the United States, um the, the people of the United States, they're just horrified that we could let this happen to a fellow human, uh, particularly when they say that the people who overheard this say, yeah, I heard of this lady screaming and I, you know, I didn't know what was going on or I didn't want to get involved. That was something that they heard. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, it's just awful to think that we could allow something like this to happen to another person. Yeah.
1: I mean, it is. It, it is a really... um to to hear this story as it was uh, popularized in the uh, New York Times mm-hmm. uh, that year, and has since this is the, and has since become a popularized version of this story, um, it yeah it's real it's really damning information because the, the idea is hey I could be that one that one person right uh, you know and then and then you feel shameful to think but then am I one of those thirty people that in any other situation would do nothing.
2: Right, yeah, people really took it um, to heart, and it became known as the Genovese syndrome, but uh, also known as the bystander effect, which is something that's probably known. That term is known better now,
1: or just bystander apathy, right?
2: Bystander yeah. apathy, yeah, that's another one. But what we found out though is that this story was actually greatly exaggerated. Yes. Kitty Genovese was killed by a man who, who went out that night and decided that he was going to kill a woman mm-hmm. um, and and, and, was, attacked her. and
1: he was very open about this. Like there, this guy was, was mentally disturbed yeah. and was very open about I went out to kill somebody that night. Yeah. And he's still in prison uh, to this day. Yeah. Uh, is he really? This, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it turns out that there weren't as many bystanders as previously thought. There was something around the, the order of six people. And, uh in fact, she was at one point dragged to this one part of the building. I think it was in maybe like the portico. And one guy could hear her essentially mm-hmm. being finished off, so to speak. But he, uh, you know, he still didn't contact the police. He was inebriated. He mm-hmm. didn't want to... um Get involved. So he did ask his neighbor to call the police.
1: Yeah, there's an American psychologist uh, paper from uh, 2007 mm-hmm. where they uh, they went back and they were they were going beyond the New York Times article and looking at legal documents, court transcripts, and uh, some recent historical uh, research uh, into the uh, the event, mm-hmm. in, into the attack. And they had found that there were two attacks, not three. That the uh, con- the, the the way that the crime scene was configured. Uh, Would have made it impossible for all but one of the known witnesses to have seen the crime in its entirety. Yeah. And uh, the people, uh, the police may have been called in much earlier than thought, and she may have been alive when the cops arrived. Okay. So.
2: Okay. And the reason why we're bringing all this up is because, you know, whether or not the story was exaggerated, what it did is it actually uh, helped people to put a term to to something that actually is a real condition: the bystander effect.
1: It kicked off enough outrage and public interest that we named it and. a lot of really solid research uh, went into why uh, this kind of behavior exists in the crowd.
2: Yeah, and we've seen this again and again. And in fact, Joseph DeMay, who who talks about the story and how it's exaggerated, uh, was asked on the show, uh, on the media, it's the NPR show. It's really great if you yeah, haven't checked one. it out. Um, he was asked, well, so, okay, if that story was exaggerated, that does it really exist? And he said, well, of course, the bystander effect exists. Just look around you. You know, there was that incident where a poor worker was trampled at the Green Acres Shopping Center by shoppers anxious to get an electronic sale. We've seen this again mm-hmm. and again, I think just most recently there was a pregnant woman who was trampled and lost her baby um, with this same sort of excitement that was happening around around a sale.
1: Yeah, and you don't even really ha- you don't even have to go to um, outrageous newspaper uh, stories no to, to get examples of it just anytime you've ever driven down the highway and passed uh, that, that poor uh, guy, that poor family that uh, has a flat tire right because you, you just keep going and you probably don't even really think anything about it.
2: Well, you think someone else will help Well, them, yeah, right?
1: if you, if you even consciously, uh, you know, turn the wheels, like maybe, you know, it's having a subconscious level a lot of the time, but, but, you know, you might think, oh, well, someone else will help them, or, oh, they probably called AAA, or, oh, they got it.
2: Well, or- and even, even in a circumstance like this, uh, Demay points out, like, there, okay, there was a woman in the Kings County Psychiatric Ward who collapsed on the floor there, mm-hmm. where, where she's being taken care of, right? In theory. So basically, the staff just left her there to die, you know, four hours later, she died. Um, and then he also said, you know, there that you can look in the newspaper on any given day and see something that is, uh, reflective of the bystander effect. Um, and he says that, you know, it's a, it's this diffusion of responsibility and it's impossible to say that such a phenomenon of some sort does not exist.
1: Yeah. So there are four key components in the bystander effect. Like you said, uh, one of them is diffuse responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the, the simple idea that, uh, if 30 people were witnessing something, then if I'm one of 30 people witnessing an event, well, there are 29 other people that could do something. It's like right. if I'm driving down an interstate and I see somebody with a flat tire, there are countless cars. Like there are plenty of other people. I'm just one of many. Somebody will do something about that. But if I am on a, de- like say a deserted road in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. that, and I know that I'm probably one of the only people that is going to go down that road today, mm-hmm. and I see somebody with a flat tire, well, then there's not really much in the way of diffused uh, uh, responsibility unless I have some sort of mistaken idea that a woodchuck's going to help this guy with his tire.
2: A woodchuck could, if a
1: woodchuck could. That's true. That's that's the thing. <laughs> um, another one is um, self-awareness. All right. Yeah. This is the perceived or actual presence of an audience to your actions that mm-hmm. inhibits you from acting, all right? You don't want to appear foolish or inappropriate. An example of this um, takes me back to this weekend when I was at the dentist office, and I go in, I'm, I'm sitting down at the dentist office, and mm-hmm. they always have, you know, the TVs on, and it's playing something annoying. I was the only person in there, and they were playing an episode of um, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, this whole thing, like some, it all has to do with, like, sexual assault, like, very much... The kind of thing that we covered, the kind of story we covered with the, at the beginning it's of the podcast. It's not
2: necessarily something that you want to watch while you are in a dentist chair. Yeah, right?
1: but I'm kind of like, all right, I don't feel like, like complaining about it. But then a mother and two kids comes in, come into the, the dentist office. Mm-hmm. And they sit down, they like start filling out their paperwork, but it's like two little kids and they're, they're reading their little children's books and the mom's sitting there looking at a magazine and the TV is special victims unit with, uh, you know, in, in investigators uh, looking into like sexual offenses and right. and some pretty graphic discussion of uh, what these uh these uh, these crimes consisted of. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there, and part of me is like, I should get up and go tell the uh, the lady at the front desk, hey, there are kids here. Mm-hmm. Why don't you change to Disney Channel or something? Right. Um. You know, or something less um potentially traumatic. Mm-hmm. But but the other voice uh was saying, no, the mom's sitting right there. I'm gonna come mm-hmm. off looking like a total jerk because I'm gonna be implying that she doesn't know what she's doing or right. that she, you know, isn't exerting enough responsibility for these kids. Mm-hmm. So that's the self-awareness factor of it. Okay. We're afraid, you know, somebody needs help, but are we going to look stupid getting up and going to help them? So we're afraid of being judged. Right. All right. And then the next one is social clues. All right. Individuals uh, actively look to one another for, for cues about how to behave in the situation. Oh, is um, this
2: the pluralistic ignorance?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is like, in, like say you're on... Uh, on the on the subway train, mm-hmm. and there's somebody acting you know, there's there's somebody acting strange. Mm-hmm. There, you you sort of look to everybody else to say, "Hey, are we, should we be concerned about this? Is this is this for real? Is this yeah. a deal? You know?" And uh, and if nobody, if everyone else is ignoring it, you're kind of like, oh, "All right, I guess this is nothing. I'm just gonna." You know, I straight ahead, right back to my book or something. But mm-hmm. if everyone else is looking a little weird, then you're like, all right, this is something serious. So one of us is going to have to get up and go push the alert button. Right. That okay. kind of situation. And then there's blocking. Mm-hmm. And this is a realization that if somebody needs help, uh, all 30 of us cannot help uh in in this uh, particular situation. Like if it's, if it's a situation where you just need one person, maybe two, mm-hmm. to help this individual with their uh, situation, mm-hmm. 30 people is just going to overwhelm them. And possibly make the situation worse.
2: So is that that same idea of just shirking off the responsibility because yeah. you figure that someone else is going to help or? Right. Okay.
1: Like, like you're, there are 30 people and then there's another person who has a cut on their finger. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we all go and put a band-aid on it, mm-hmm. that's, the person doesn't need 30 band-aids. They need one, maybe two band-aids, you know, if they want to do the cross thing. But, um, that would be kind of awesome though, yeah.
2: and and horrible too. 30 bandaged crushed once, by yeah. 30 people just trying to get your your hand bandaged. Um yeah, I mean this again, this diffusion of responsibility I think is really interesting and um there are two rules that we usually operate in, under when we're in society. One that we ought to help, right? Mm-hmm. And two that we ought to do what everyone else is doing. So, this these temporary rules bubble up that we inadvertently create when we're a group, which we have, we're not even communicating to one another, you know, w- with language, right? right? We're not even saying, Hey, let's not do this because we all feel okay with it. But somehow we all know that, you know, we're all bouncing off of each other and somehow are thinking to ourselves, okay, well, if you're not concerned about it, then I'm not concerned about it. And I think that's fascinating. And there are a bunch of BBC shorts um, that are, were experienced that you can go on YouTube and see them where they show this in action, and I thought it was pretty fascinating. They they did one um, set of videos at the Liverpool Street Station in London, and there was an actor dressed in jeans and overcoat and sneakers, and he's crumpled up at the foot of the stairs, and he's saying to people as they pass by, please help me, please help me. And he lays there for 20 minutes, 20 minutes, without anybody helping him, which I think in and of itself is pretty interesting. Yeah. But then they have a female actor do the same thing. She's dressed in a skirt and a jacket. She has a purse on. And she's not saying, help me, but she actually, she kind of looks dead, actually. Uh, but she sprawled out on the stairs and 34 people pass in four minutes and they don't help her. And finally, there's a, a woman who is uh, you see her behavior. It's very interesting. She starts to pass by and then she starts. To, she stops and, and she kind of looks around at other people like, hey, isn't this weird? Mm-hmm. And then she kind of circles and hangs out, but she's not quite going to do anything yet. Out of nowhere, this guy comes up directly to the woman and says, are you OK? And then all of a sudden she's right by his side. And she's saying, you know, can I help you? It's, you know, she needed that guy to come to right. to corroborate her concern.
1: Yeah. And, and you, you see that happen a lot, a lot. You know, it's like the first person to actually come uh, forward and try to help somebody. Then mm-hmm. suddenly there are a few other people as well. Yeah. Maybe not all 30, but suddenly it'll go from. You know, from nothing to five or six, just like that.
2: Yeah. Well, and this was the, the most interesting one. This is the, the third person in this experiment. It was the same actor from the, from the first that was crumpled on the stairs with his jeans on. But, um, now he comes back and he's dressed in like an impeccable, expensive suit and he's crumpled up at the bottom of the stairs and it takes just six seconds for one person to help him, Hmm. which then attracts this crowd of, of people who are now Around him, saying, "Yeah, yeah, can you? Can I help you?" So there is this one element where, where yeah, we're we're sort of seeding our decisions to other people. But then it's sort of like, well, if you're if you look socially, like in in the the most correct role, then you're probably going to get more help, right? Right. Because he looked important.
1: All right, well, we're going to take a quick uh, break, and when we come back, we're going to look at some of that uh, hard research that uh, that popped up uh, following this uh, the the, uh, Genevieve case. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at Curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, and we're back. So, uh, like we said, the Genovese case, uh, some of the, the details are kind of contested con- – well, not contested, but disproven today. And the version of the story that is sometimes um, – referenced in papers and textbooks, uh, et cetera, is, is maybe not the, the true version of what happened. It's kind of, it had kind of has become a parable. Mm-hmm. But the research, as we said, is still pretty solid. Like people were outraged enough by this. They were like, let's do some studies. And, uh, and the first big study was this one by, um, uh, Darley and Latane, right?
2: Yeah, John Darley and Bib Latane, uh, that this whole Genovese syndrome or, uh, bystander effect mm-hmm. really inspired them to, to try to look at this in multiple models okay. and really ferret what, out what was going on. Um, and I think one of the ones that I think is most interesting to me is the lady in distress. Uh, in this experiment, subjects either waited alone with a friend or with a passive confederate, meaning an actor who was acting passively, right? Okay. Or with a stranger in a room. And the room was separate from another room by a curtain, which uh, they would pass on their way to their waiting room. And the experimenter who led them there returned to the other room and left, turning on a tape recording um, of, a, of what sounded like someone falling and then moaning in that other room. So they couldn't see that person, but for 130 seconds... They could hear this person in some sort of distress and they measured the percent of people who took action and how long it took for them to act. And overall, 61 percent of people pulled back the curtain to check on the experimenter because they assumed it was the experimenter who fell. Right. Right. Fourteen percent entered uh, via another door to check on the experimenter and 24 percent simply called out to say, hey, are you OK? But nobody went to actually report the accident. Okay, to say mm-hmm. hey, there's someone hurt in the other room. Um th- and this is where the data gets really interesting. 70% of alone subjects reacted, but only 7% of those with another person in the in the room, the passive confederate, the actor who just sat there and pretended like everything was okay, only 7% of them reacted. Oh wow. So it means that if you're if if you're by yourself, you're probably going to be a lot more responsible, right? Uh-huh. But if someone else is in the room, they don't seem concerned boom it it doesn't matter um uh, the subjects with confederates became confused and they frequently looked over at the person and when they were paired with a stranger only 40% um of those people in the room with a stranger actually acted out or said hey are you okay so when they had their friends in the room 70% of the time they helped um which shows you know a That they felt responsibility with someone that they knew. Right. Okay. But what's interesting about that is that that's the same percent as if they were alone. So Mm -hmm. you would think, and this is this is what the researchers say, that you would think that if they were alone, like ninety-one percent of the time, they would have reacted.
1: So based on the findings of that study, Mm -hmm. uh, if I say I'm feeling like like let's say I've been stabbed. No, no, that's a bit sad. Let me let me. Yeah, yeah.
2: let's say. Let's
1: say I have um, I'm feeling really sick. And I'm oh, you're on, about
2: to puke? I'm about to puke, Oof.
1: and I'm uh, I'm on the, the MARTA train, taking the train to work. Okay. And I get to choose which car I'm going to throw up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and after I throw up, I'm really going to hope somebody helps me and gets me to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the appropriate number of people on the train?
2: Oh, my goodness. Is this like a test?
1: Yeah, this is a, a test. Or, you know, just asking your learned opinion.
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, even, even better. I'm just going to say that maybe... One or two other people on the train with you is greatly going to increase your chances okay. of of getting aid,
1: but not one if it's just one person if
2: it's afford. one even better oh, okay that's my opinion, right Just yeah. from what we've seen that the 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 lower the amount of people around you, the more apt they are to help you correct okay. but if you're if you're about to puke all over the place and thirty people are in the train with you, they're all gonna back away, yeah, or I've already changed cars <laughs>
1: Well, it's, it's it definitely uh Provides a lot of insight into how uh, crowds think. I mean, there's more to how crowds think. We have, I believe we've covered some of this in the past, uh, talking about uh, groupthink and um, and how crowds re- respond uh, uh, on a um, on a mental level. Uh, in a, in our very very recent episode, mm-hmm. we discussed. Uh, Sort of the physics of crowds, and how uh, a large number of people can can quickly uh, spiral out of control right and, and become this like the movement the physical movement of the crowd becomes something that cannot be predicted or controlled
2: well, and the psychology is so interesting because going back to the the lady in distress um, experiment that Labat did um, is that the, the interveners, the people who did something, they claim that they acted that way because the fall seemed serious and it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the non-interveners who were with the other people said that they were unsure what happened, uh, and they decided it wasn't serious. And some felt that they didn't want to embarrass the researcher, huh. which was that whole judgment yeah. part, right? Um So they were really influenced by the people that were in the room with them. And you just don't think that when when you're, you're making individual decisions. You don't even realize that on that level, you're sitting there calculating whether or not the, the person next to you is – uh, unless you're highly self-aware, right? Right. You usually don't realize that that person's having an effect on your decision-making processes, which, again, brings into the whole question of free will about right. whether or not it really exists.
1: And uh, this, uh, this study is especially interesting given the, um, the, the way our lives have been affected by uh, social media and the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, 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 everyone has seen stories in the past year or two where somebody, um, you know, basically put out a cry for help on Facebook, mm-hmm. on their Facebook profile. And then and and in some of these cases, nobody really did anything. And then the person dies or, uh, you know, ends up uh, trying to take their own life or something to this effect. And uh, and people are like, well, why didn't we do anything? Mm-hmm. Why did we just sit there and uh, just scan over their 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 depressing uh, Facebook status update? Or why did we pre- even maybe press ignore? Oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, why didn't we we do something? You know?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, That that when we talk about crowds these days, we really need to probably redefine what a crowd is because it's not doesn't have to be a bunch of people in a a physical room together. I mean, we have a crowd action uh, via the Internet these days with just as many community ties.
1: Yeah, I saw uh, I was looking at a paper earlier um, from Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. uh, here in town, and they were actually using the bystander effect um, as a a way to try and understand patterns of participation in Mm -hmm. online classrooms. So I found that interesting. Like, uh, they were kind of, you know, taking it slightly out of its context because bystander, um, effect deals more specifically with people responding to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a- a bad situation uh, someone that's injured, somebody that's in danger, more of a life and death type of a thing rather than uh are you paying attention to the lecture or not or are you- you know participating in class right but uh but apparently, but it did a, supply some insight into how these classrooms behave and and to what degree they' are going to interact with the class
2: that makes total sense to me in fact, that's you know being in a classroom, I'm sure everybody knows that um you know whether or not you were eight years old at the time or twenty years old. Mm -hmm. When someone says something or something happens, don't you all look at each other to see how you're going to react? Right. it's a classic case of how a a crowd affects one another.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things, too. If you're in a classroom where most people just do not care, Mm -hmm. I I feel like a lot of times you're going to be less likely to be the the brainy egghead who's going to interact with the teacher. Mm -hmm. You could have an amazing lecturer, but if most of the people in there are sleeping or just kind of, you know, shooting evil eyes at each other. Than
2: uh, drawing unicorns, drawing
1: unicorns. then uh, then you're going to, it feels like you're going to be less, uh, less likely to interact. Whereas if the class, if the class as a whole is really engaged, there's going to be this energy of engagement mm-hmm. and you're going to want to be like, yeah, these are my thoughts on, uh, you know, the fall of Byzantium.
2: Speaking of, uh, unicorns and doodling, didn't uh-huh. you just post something recently on Facebook about how that actually helps you retain information in a meeting?
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I was really, uh, uh, yeah, that was, uh, just came out the other day, put it on the Facebook, um. A profile for stuff to blow your mind. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that it was a TED talk actually. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I I didn't want to check that out because I was pretty excited about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had it on, but I was doodling, so I didn't really. Of course. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. But you retained everything.
1: Yeah. But yeah. no, no, that makes sense because I, I, I doodle a lot and, uh, and some of my note taking is borderline doodling. It's just kind of,
2: well, I've noticed just when you and I talk about podcast subjects, sometimes um, when we meet beforehand, just to say, "Hey, we're we going to talk about that." You draw a lot of pictures when when you're talking about a subject. You want to explain? You're it illustrating it. Or, okay, it. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty great. Well, we should post those actually. Sometimes.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes it's about like you know, I'll, I do a lot of talking with my hands sometimes, mm-hmm. but uh, but 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 sometimes instead of doing that, I'll just you know, you just sort of doodle and sort of draw the the motions on the paper. I don't know why, but.
2: I don't know. Yeah. There you go.
1: So, uh, I actually do not have any listener mail because I forgot to get some. Because there's there's a seemingly endless supply of it, but I forgot to uh, uh, dip the ladle into the bucket. Um,
2: I can't believe you forgot your yeah. ladle. Yeah. You didn't hear the scream on the inside, did you?
1: On the inside of the bucket? Of me. Oh. Yeah, when you oh. said that. Uh, we'll
2: survive, though, I suppose. Yeah. There's somebody. There's another one.
1: Uh, a, a guy by the name of Brandon did come up to me at a campfire this weekend. Because you were at a
2: campfire, okay? Yeah.
1: Well, it was in a backyard. I don't know if it's really a campfire; but it's in the backyard. Nobody's camping, but uh, you know, there's a fire, and uh, and so he he came up and said, "Hey, this show's really great." Uh, you know, so.
2: Oh, thanks, Brandon. So
1: if you know me and you would like to approach me and tell me the show is great, do so. It will not be awkward at all. It'll be it'll be kind of awesome, and we'll we'll grow closer for the experience. So.
2: I heard too that if someone does that to you, that you'll start crooning uh, stuff to blow your mind song to them is that true
1: <laughs> we have a song in exchange for, oh yeah. for no, a pleasantry the, you mean the secret lyrics to the uh, intro song that mm-hmm. we play every time oh yeah, yeah yeah it's true yeah it's only available if you approach me in person though um uh, try not to do it at a funeral because i'm i'm oath bound to break into song and I would prefer not to do it in front of an open casket. Yeah, yeah that's, there's, that's my there's, one there's ruling, a couple but.
2: awkward places where you probably shouldn't do yeah. it. All right, so there you go. Um, I hope that you guys have all enjoyed um, some interesting facts about the bystander effect. And it's really made me think about my own reactions to some yeah, yeah, circumstances here. in my life um, yeah. and, and whether or not I was unknowingly uh, under the power of it.
1: Yeah, and I should I should also add that the um, at the dental office they eventually did change the TV to Disney Channel, but it was more it was more it was a situation where the uh, the lady working the front desk kind of figured out it's like oh maybe I should change off of um, a special victims unit and maybe go to like Donald Duck or something.
2: That's um, all right because they just went home and played Grand Auto Theft and killed Grand, a couple hookers anyway. Grand, so Grand, so. Auto Theft? Grand, Theft, Grand Auto. Theft Auto, it's, oh, oh my God, but it's, sure it's but yes, it's a, it's adorable
1: Auto. that you thought it was. Grand Auto Theft.
2: I always say it that way. So there you go.
1: Anyway, so if uh, if you have anything you'd like to share with us, be it about Grand Auto Theft or uh, your own encounters with uh, the uh, apathy of the crowds, then uh, let us know about it. For starters, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow The Mind on both of those.
2: And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising
2: and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool.
0: Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for best documentary feature. We're gonna get into that with some amazing panelists.
2: You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human.
0: This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. Thank you.
1: Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed a hundred thousand miles